This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This morning, we're beginning a season here at Resurrection where we will be preaching out of the church lectionary. Now, sometimes at Resurrection, we preach a sermon series based on a book of the Bible or a theme. But one of the things we want to really step into this morning, as Bishop Stewart was even praying just a few moments ago, is to receive the gift that is the church and the gift of gathering together to worship Jesus Christ. And one of the gifts that the church has given us built over the course of the history of the church is the church lectionary, guiding us through the Bible based on where we are in the liturgical year. So I hope this morning uh, and in this season, as we preach and study the church lectionary together, that it'll be a blessing to you. So one of the best coaches I ever had was Coach Carl. He was my baseball coach in elementary school. And full disclosure, I was not a very good hitter. I marvel at my own boy's ability to hit a baseball. I can count on one finger the times I hit the ball out of the infield. Um, But there was this game and I found myself coming up to bat, standing on deck and realizing what was happening. Bases loaded, two outs, bottom of the last inning, we're down by a run. And I was freaking out. And Coach Carl comes up to me and he puts his arm around me and he says, Steve, I want you to take in this moment because this moment is like life. And sometimes you come up the plate, up to the plate at the hardest moment. And I want you to remember this moment and not shy away from these moments you can step up to the plate and you can do it. And it's the funniest thing, I have remembered that moment my entire life. I was telling this story to to Bishop Stewart right, right before the service and he said, well, what happened? Well, let's just say that I did hit it into play, not into the outfield. And there may or may not have been some juggling of the baseball, but I did make it to first safely. I don't know if you call it a hit, But he said, the point is, Steve, you made it to first base. Um, Maybe perhaps the point is that although Coach Carl was a very good coach, what I really remember about him is that he was a really good teacher. And he always took the opportunity to teach me more than just baseball. So I ask you this morning, who's the best teacher you ever had? Who comes to mind for you? Was it a professor who just had such a passion and a command of the subject that they were teaching that you just couldn't wait to get into the classroom and hear their next lecture? Maybe it was someone else, a teacher, a coach, someone else who just took a personal interest in you, who called something out in you, who called out a passion in you that you never knew that you had. A great teacher regardless if it's in the classroom or somewhere else, can have a profound impact on your life. They can actually change the course of your life, what career you choose to pursue, or they can change your perspective on how you see the world. And when a teacher has this kind of impact on your life, they're discipling you. You're being discipled by them. You start to model your life after something that you see in them. 
So here's another question for you this morning. Right now, at this moment, who's discipling you? Who is the primary discipler in your life? What voice has the greatest influence in your life? Who are you modeling your life after? Now, I'm not just talking about religious teachers when we talk about being discipled. We can be discipled by the music we listen to. We can be taught and discipled by the news shows we watch or the books we read or the newspaper columnists who are especially of interest to us. But as we look at this passage this morning, where we see a clash, a confrontation between two sets of teachers, the religious leaders on one side in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law. They call them the lawyers sometimes. They're on one side, and on the other side stands Jesus. And I want to ask you this morning, who is discipling you? Is it Jesus? You call him Lord, but is he also your discipler? Is he also your teacher? Well, let's look at these, these two types of teachers in our passage this morning. There's four confrontations in Matthew 22 between the religious leaders and Jesus. And each one really deserves a very deep dive because there's a ton going on. There's huge significance to each and every one of these four confrontations. But instead of zooming in this morning to any one of those and digging deep, I actually want to zoom through and over the whole, and I want us to look at these two sets of teachers. And as we're doing it, I want you to keep that question before you. Who is discipling you? Now, if you don't know what you're going to do in your Bible study this week at home, I recommend you do a deep dive here. There's a lot of significance in each and every one of these passages. But I want to start with my thesis statement. And it's this. A disciple, over the course of time, begins to look more and more like their teacher. So let's look at the two sets of teachers we see here in Matthew 22. First, starting in verse 15, we have the religious leaders. We first see the Pharisees. We'll see the Sadducees and a lawyer in just a minute. But these teachers have received a very formal education. They are very knowledgeable in the Hebrew scriptures, and they hold positions of honor and authority over the people of Jerusalem. But there's this other teacher who's come on the scene, Jesus of Nazareth. And as he entered Jerusalem just the day before, the people were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Now that phrase, the son of David, has huge significance for the people of Israel. It refers to the promised Messiah in the Old Testament, the king from the line of David who would come and restore the nation of Israel and rule as king forever. And the religious leaders see Jesus as a threat. And what we see here in this passage is they want to protect their positions of authority. Their primary motivation is self-preservation by any means necessary. So look at verse 15. 
Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. So notice first, the Pharisees, plural, they're in a group and they have a plan. They have a plot and it is to test and entangle Jesus. They're setting a trap for him. Verse 16, and they sent their disciples to him along with Herodian saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. They use flattery. They heap disingenuous compliments on top of Jesus before they hit him with what they think is their bombshell question. Verse 17, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus sees right through these leaders. In verse 18, Matthew tells us he sees their malice and he asks them, why do you put me to the tests, you hypocrites? They call him teacher, but they have no interest in sitting under Jesus' teaching. In fact, they're trying to maintain their position of authority, of authority over Jesus, but they think they've caught him. They think they have a trap for him that there's no right answer to this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Because to say yes will anger the people. I mean, what kind of Messiah would come and say, yes, let's stay under Roman rule. But on the other hand, if he says no, they've got an accusation to bring against him to the Roman authorities. And they think they've got him in a trap. So that's the Pharisees. And their motivation is self-preservation, to protect their established positions of authority. But look at Jesus, on the other hand. Jesus stands all by himself. He has no formal education. He has no earthly office. He has not brought up a posse or a group plan of attack to get back at the Pharisees. There was no debate prep for Jesus before this encounter. But look at his response in verse 19. Show me the coin for the tax, said Jesus. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. The Pharisees were pointing Jesus towards a trap all about earthly authority. But Jesus not only avoids their trap, but he points to something much more important. Render to God the things that are God's. Jesus points towards his father and his heavenly eternal and ultimate authority. Jesus knows that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Jesus knows that Caesar would have no authority unless it were given to him from above. Jesus, the teacher, always points towards the Father. The religious leaders, they were motivated by their own self-preservation. But Jesus' motivation was his father's glorification. And he always points us towards the father. So who's discipling you? What is their motivation? Do they point you towards the father?
towards his glory? Or, or do they perhaps have other intentions? What's the fruit of your teacher's life? Do you see any plotting, any malice, any hypocrisy? Or are you being discipled by Jesus, who always points us towards the heavenly father to live our lives in a way that glorifies him? So both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they they take another attempt at taking down Jesus. First, we see in verse 23 that the Sadducees, they try to entangle Jesus in an ongoing debate between them and the Pharisees all about the resurrection of the dead. Is there a resurrection from the dead? And they create this ridiculous scenario about a woman who's had seven different husbands to try to prove their point. Because the Sadducees, they're trying to put Jesus in a camp. They're trying to put him... Pick, make him pick a side so that his followers will be separated, will be divided. Basically, they're saying, Jesus, who are you going to vote for, us or them? And then the Pharisees next make their attempt, and they want to test Jesus' knowledge. Because in their formal training, the Pharisees had memorized the right answers to a whole host of questions about the law. And they're hoping to expose Jesus as a fraud, that he doesn't have the right answers to their questions. But notice how at no point in this debate, in this entire passage, do we ever actually hear the words of scripture on the lips of any of the religious leaders. These supposed experts in the law do not quote directly a single passage of scripture. Oh, they have theological ideas. They have their debate questions and their right test answers, but their relationship with the word of God, with the scriptures, with the law, seems very, very distant. But then there's Jesus. And Jesus in his answers reveals this incredibly deep knowledge and connection with the scriptures. The word of God springs forth from his mouth. In the challenge from the Pharisees, he quickly quotes um, Deuteronomy 3.6. And then boom, in his confrontation with the Pharisees, he pulls out Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. But not only does Jesus know his scriptures, not only do they come forth from his lips, instantaneously, but he draws out deeper meanings beyond things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had ever considered. In the Sadducees' question about the resurrection, Jesus points them to Deuteronomy 6.5 and notices something they'd never seen, that God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus has spent time in the scriptures. He knows them deeply. One of the other readings in the lectionary for today is from Psalm 1. And I love the way that the church pairs this reading with this passage from the Gospel of Matthew. Let me just read you a couple verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. Hello, religious leaders. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
Jesus had spent time delighting in the Lord, meditating on it. The apostle John tells us that Jesus would all often awake early while it was still dark outside and go off to desolate places and pray, spending time with the Lord, spending time meditating on the word of God. So who's discipling you? Do you hear the word of God on their lips? Do they encourage you to go deeper into the scriptures, to delight in them and to meditate on them? Because some teachers will lead you to be satisfied with simple and surface level answers in accordance to God's word, just to theological ideas, to write answers to the test questions. To some teachers, the scriptures are valuable insofar as they serve whatever their primary motivation is? Or are you being discipled by Jesus who delights in the law of the Lord, who calls us to do the same, to spend time meditating on God's word until every action, every thought, every decision springs forth from the word of God. So after this, in verse 41, Jesus turns the tables on the religious leaders. And after their series of rather ridiculous questions for him, Jesus asks the only question worth asking in this whole confrontation. And Jesus says in verse 42, what do you think about the Christ, about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees, and they're ready for this. Oh, easy answer. They know this test question. The son of David, of course. And Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord. And now Jesus quotes Psalm 110. Now the Pharisees knew this Psalm well. They knew it was a prophecy about the Messiah. And Jesus recites it to them. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus says, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus challenges their surface level test answer to his question. Do they really understand who the Messiah is? Is he just David's son or is he also his Lord? And then I, 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 love, I love this last verse. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Game, set, match. Jesus wins the debate. But of course, Jesus was not just the superior teacher. He didn't just win the debate. But in this last passage, he's pointing to the deeper truth about the Messiah, about himself, that Jesus' superior authority ultimately flows out of his superior identity. He's not just a greater teacher than the religious leaders, but he is their Messiah. He is their king and their Lord. So the religious leaders in the end, they're actually much less than what they seemed. Their positional authority was not supported by their lives and their character. Jesus actually warns at the beginning of the next chapter that to be wary of the religious leaders because they do not practice what they preach. But Jesus' disciples were beginning to see that he was so much more than he first seemed. Yes, he was their teacher and what an incredible teacher he was. 
He had called them out of their boats and their tax collector booths. He had spent every moment with them. He had invested in them personally over the course of three years. He had taught them and trained them in the scriptures. But they were also coming to see that he was not only their teacher, but that he had a claim to a position of authority above every other, that he was their Messiah. He was their king. He was their Lord. So who's discipling you? What is their true identity? Are they what they seem? Do they practice what they preach? Are you being discipled by Jesus, the teacher who always seeks the glory of his father, who always calls us deeper into his word and whose position and title is above every other, whose name is above every other name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So here I just wanna return to my thesis statement. A disciple over the course of time begins to look more and more like their teacher. And in this passage, we don't just see two sets of teachers, but we also see two sets of disciples. So look again at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples. The Pharisees send their own disciples to, be, to begin the attack on Jesus. These disciples are being trained up in the wickedness and deception of their teachers, of their disciplers. They were learning how to entangle anyone who threatened their position of authority. They were becoming more and more like their teachers. Well, Jesus' disciples... Um, they're not mentioned in the passage. They never speak up. It doesn't seem like at the moment they were a lot of help to Jesus in this actual debate. But we know, we know they're there because Matthew, one of the disciples, is the one who records this story for us. And they're there watching Jesus, being discipled by him even in this moment. And when we first meet the disciples in the gospel, they're a rather ragtag bunch of individuals. They, they don't have a lot of earthly qualifications. But by the time we see them in the book of Acts, there is this incredible boldness to proclaim the word of God and authority to proclaim the gospel because the disciples are becoming more and more like their teacher, Jesus. So who is discipling you? Who are you becoming more like? I want to ask you that question, and I, I actually want you to consider it for a moment, because sometimes who is discipling us is actually, it's not been an intentional choice. Sometimes it can just happen to us. So who is that voice who has the primary influence on your life. Is it Jesus? Is it someone else? Actually, as I was preparing this more, uh, for this sermon this morning, I actually had this sense of a specific word for, for some of you that you've called Jesus your Lord for a long time, perhaps most of your life. But if you're honest, 
It's been a long time since you've let him be your teacher, your discipler. It's been a long time since you've been discipled by Jesus. And other voices have gained much greater authority in your life than Jesus. And if you're honest, you're actually becoming a lot more like them than you're becoming like Jesus. So this morning, I just want to invite you back, not just to receive Jesus as your Lord, but to receive him as your teacher. All of us can be encouraged this morning to stay the course, to let Jesus be our discipler, our teacher for our entire lives. That's a prayer that you can pray. Jesus, disciple me my entire life. You don't have to graduate from Jesus' school of discipleship. And we've all heard some of the very sad stories. We all know some of these people personally who, have, who call Jesus Lord. But at some point, for some reason, they stop being discipled by Jesus. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus will disciple you your entire life. So let's pray that we will live our entire lives as disciples of Jesus, that we will be faithful to the last, becoming more like him every day. To the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.